My name's Stuart Holman, I'm the Senior Associate here, and it's great to be together tonight. We are in the fifth week in our series on the book of Revelation, the book that shows us where this world is all going and what it's for. It's about the end of things, that is, their purpose and their destiny. And this message is addressed to a church in anxious times, times of stress, trouble and in fact persecution here in the first century, uh, the initial recipients. And we've just had Revelation 4 read to us and its imagery is quite overpowering. Uh, there's got thrones and winged creatures and elders and songs of praise. It's an amazing vision of the glory of God. And so for this reason, the, the takeaway message tonight is pretty straightforward. You can pick it up right from the very beginning. It's all about God's glory. And his power beyond, above, and throughout all of creation, no matter how bad it gets. In anxious times, this is the first thing that we need to know. Revelation 4 is also important because we're at a significant transition point in the book of Revelation. And to make sense of all of this, I think it would be really helpful if we could just very quickly get all of the book of Revelation in our head at one time. And so we'll do that very quickly in the next few moments. It's a snack. So um, this diagram, by the way, will appear on the web through the week, and so you don't need to sort of write it down as we go. But we already know chapter 1 of the book of Revelation begins with this vision uh, that John receives of the resurrected and glorified Jesus. He rules at God's right hand. And then, as we've seen over the previous three weeks, chapters 2 and 3 are a series of letters that Jesus uses to address the seven churches of Asia in the first century, uh, one by one, each discussing their present situation. And that then concludes John's first vision. John then begins a second vision, which is where we're up to today in chapter 4. And this vision continues throughout the book of Revelation. And this vision describes God's glory and his rule over everything that must soon take place. And it is this vision that really should just remain in the forefront of our minds throughout the entire series. Uh, throughout all of the turmoil and the wars and the plagues and the conflict and the beasts, we need to remember that God sits enthroned, ruling in power above it all. He is majestic. He is not panicking. He is not disturbed. He is watching while his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. His majestic rule triumphs. And at the end of this vision, that's exactly what we see. By the time we get to the end of the book of Revelation, evil is defeated. All things are brought together under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ and the new creation is brought to us on earth. And in between those two very important kind of blue bookends, if you will, are four descriptions of a great conflict that will impact the churches. And first, uh, starting in chapter 6, there are sort of seven seals on a scroll which every time one of those seals is released, another war or another plague or another battle, more suffering uh, is meted out upon the earth. But after the sixth seal is open, there is a pause and we are shown the great army of the Lamb. 
This army is made up of people from every tribe and language and nation and culture. And no one can count. There are so many in this army. And then after that uh, little pause, the seventh seal is opened. And as that seventh seal is opened, we find that inside it, a seven trumpet blasts. So it's, it's a little bit like one of those uh, you know, uh, Russian uh, nesting dolls, you know, like inside is one and then inside is the other and so forth. Well, inside the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. And just like the previous pattern, there's a pause after the first six trumpets are blown. Then we read about the lamb's scroll. Uh, the lamb is carrying a scroll and in that is, is described certain things. Then there is a seventh trumpet blast, which, hello, takes us to seven signs. Uh, these seven signs are a little more difficult to distinguish, but we don't want to get bogged in the detail right now. Simply to say that there are three battles within that that really seem to unpack the Lamb's scroll. Then when we get to the seventh sign inside that, well, guess what? There are seven bowls. And uh, actually, it seems to me that they actually come out of the seventh trumpet, but that's, that's, we don't need to worry about that too much. Then after the seven bowls come we find that we are now at the end of the book where God's triumph uh, over evil is complete Babylon falls the final battle is done with and then the new creation comes to earth so there it is pretty simple overview of the entire book of Revelation in you know just a few moments the one thing though that we need to notice is that the entire book is framed by these visions of God's victorious, ruling glory. God's greatness frames it all. And that's what we really need to take away uh, from the entire book of Revelation. We need to keep that in the forefront of our mind. So that's where it's all going. Uh, let's now dive into the text, the detail of chapter 4. Hopefully you've still got your Bibles open in front of you. Uh, you'll need them there, open at the page. At the beginning of Revelation uh, chapter 4, we know that a new scene opens up, a new vision. And in this vision, John uh, is invited to enter and see what must happen after these things, what's about to happen. And to do that, he has to go up into the heavenly places, presumably, so that he can look down on all of creation. From God's perspective, you see, it's this heavenly perspective that is so characteristic of apocalyptic literature. Uh, you look down on all things to see them as God sees them. And with this, this wider vision, this top-down perspective, we're actually able to see ourselves more clearly. Our lives... Our challenges, our struggles are seen as they truly are. And so as we enter into John's vision, what do we see? Well, there are some very strange looking characters actually. And uh, to actually understand what's going on, we need to identify who's who. Um, so at verse 2, uh, we see, There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. I'm skipping down now to verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. So the first sort of identification is pretty easy. God 
is at the center of this scene. And it's so strange, this, this scene, that we're tempted to sort of give it up and say, you know, this is all too weird for me. I think I'll just check out at this moment because it's so strange. But what we're supposed to do with apocalyptic literature, though it is so strange, is actually to imagine ourselves into the thick of it all. The text invites us to actually fire up our imaginations that God has given us in the direction, fire up our imaginations in the direction that God's word points us. So can I invite you to place yourself in this scene that opens up before us in Revelation 4? And of course, the subject of this vision is God himself. What you might notice, though, is there is very little description, if any, of God's being, for he is too holy. We probably need, you know, heavenly sunglasses on, you know, to protect ourselves before we go further in this. God is magnificent and glorious beyond all of the pomp and ceremony of any royal wedding pageantry or sparkling tiaras that you might see. We understand God's majesty and his power not by being told what it is, but by looking at what it does as its glory emanates out from the person of God. As we see the scene surrounding God, as we consider the majesty of his throne, we infer from that the greatness of God. The best John can do is to say, look, I, I saw something like the appearance of precious stones, you know, reflecting all of the light and, and shining all around. So glorious is he, God is simply represented by a throne. He is the Almighty One, and he rules all creation. And the throne that's described, you might have noticed, it's the same throne that we read about in Ezekiel chapter 1. Okay? It's encircled by rainbows. It is shining like an emerald and, and crystal. It is splendid in its magnificence. And it displays God's power over all things. And with God, in verse 5, is the Holy Spirit, pictured by seven lamps blazing. There are these seven blazing lights, seven you know, for the numbers game that we know is happening here. Seven is the number of God, the number of complete perfection. And so these seven do not indicate that there are seven Holy Spirits, but there is one Spirit who is distributed across the seven churches of Revelation. Remember the churches, they're lampstands. They are like the, the candlestick holders, as it were, Bearing the light, the flaming light itself represents the Spirit. And so Jesus has brought John into the throne room of heaven. And as you'd expect, at the very center is God on his throne with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself will be introduced also into this vision in chapter 5. But for now, our attention is drawn to some other thrones that also appear in this place. Uh, I'm at verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. We're going to need to do a little bit of detective work to figure out, okay, who are these 24 elders and what are they about? We begin, as any good detective, with some observations. The elders sit on thrones and they wear crowns. They must be royal 
royalty of some kind. They wear special robes, white robes, uh, robes that a priest would wear. And we know that the colour white in the book of Revelation indicates not only purity, but victory. And so what have we got? We've got 24 elders who are dressed as victorious royal priests. And what do they do? Well, throughout chapters 4 and 5, we see they sing praises to God. So there's all the clues uh, in our little game of Bible charades for beginners. Victorious royal priesthood who love to sing. Who are they? Well, uh, here's the answer in case you hadn't picked it up already. 1 Peter 2 makes it really clear. As Peter addresses the church throughout the world, he says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So 1 Peter helps us to see that these 24 elders represent the whole people of God, saints from all the ages, that is, the universal church. They represent the people of God from everywhere in all time, the Catholic church, as it's called, as we declare whenever we say the creeds. We talk about the Catholic church. We believe in this church, not the the Roman Catholic church, but this universal, all-inclusive church. That's the church we're talking about. Why are there 24 elders? Best guess is it's two lots of 12. Okay? There are 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament. There are 12 apostles in the New Testament who together represent the entire people of God. So now when we look at those 24 elders, we see ourselves. They represent us. In this vision, in them we are present to the very throne of God. We're part of the universal church, right? When we meet here week by week in Roseville, we are also present to God in the heavenly places that we see in this vision. And He is present to us and with us. A little later in this service, we're going to share in Holy Communion. And as we share in that, we are actually seated. In the heavenly places with the Lord Jesus Christ as we share that meal. That is the spiritual reality of the physical thing that we are doing here. The point is, of course, that church takes on a whole new dimension when we actually start to recognize who we are now in Christ. We get God's perspective top-down on who we are as we look at this vision. Now, if you were to look around the room today, I get to see your faces. Look around if you like. It's a pretty normal night here at Roseville. Everyone's looking, you know, smart as we normally do, but we're just people. But the truth is, as God looks at us, he sees a victorious royal priesthood of people whom he loves, of those whom he has given his son for. We are treasured. And we have a presence before the very throne of God. Well, we've done some good detective work so far. Now to get now to the hard one. What's left in this scene? Well, there's those four creatures. Verse 6. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. 
The third had the face of a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. They're pretty impressive, aren't they, these creatures? Like a lion, like an ox, like an eagle, one face like a human being, covered with eyes? Who are they? Well, as we read our Bibles from cover to cover... We remember this is not the first time we've seen these guys, right? And you see them once, you wouldn't forget them. They're the four living creatures that we met in our reading in Ezekiel 1 earlier tonight. They also appear in Isaiah 6. They are God's powerful agents. They are actually special throne attendant angels who represent the entire created order before God. And they represent God's authority over that creation. Their covering of eyes represents God's omniscience, that is, God's all-seeing, all-knowingness over all creation. Uh, For the people who enjoy the numbers game, there are four of them, right? The number four is typical of creation throughout apocalyptic literature. So, you know, we have north, south, east, and west. We have the four corners of the earth, the four winds. Uh, And here we have four creatures with four faces. Uh, It includes, do you notice, the animal kingdom. There are lions and and there are oxen and eagles and so forth. So these four creatures, weird and majestic as they are, represent all of creation. Which is why in Ezekiel 1, in that vision we saw, they actually sit under God's throne as if they're holding it up and they become a kind of footstool for God who sits upon the throne. And yet their upper wings seem to form some kind of canopy over it. And if you're familiar with the design of the Holy of Holies in Moses' tabernacle or in Solomon's temple, uh, you'll see, oh yeah, inside there, there was a sculptural representation of this heaven reality, heavenly reality. Okay, so now we've pretty much covered the people who are in the scene here in this amazing vision. What's happening here? What's the action? Well, there is lots of singing. That's what's going on. Do you see in verse 8, the four creatures who represent all of creation sing day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the song of all created beings. All that God has made declares his greatness. Do you remember in the Psalms it talks about, you know, trees, clap your hands, skies, shout forth God's praises. You know, so sun and moon and birds and animals too, they're all called to give give glory to God. You know, everything God has made declares his greatness. All the beauty of the Great Barrier Reef. Uluru at sunset. Snowy mountains on a sunny day. All the vast expanse of the galaxies and the stars sing the glory and the greatness of God. And whenever that happens, which is all the time, day and night, in verses 9 and 11, the church falls down before that throne and they give glory to God. And they sing as well. They sing, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. That God is worthy of praise kind of stretches our imaginations a little bit, I think. 
the elders are, are declaring that God entirely deserves all of the acclamation and all of the glory that creation could possibly summon up and muster. It's actually right and good and fitting that God receives this praise. You know, if you go to the opera house and you see some amazing virtuoso performance, okay, it, it would be churlish, wouldn't it, to kind of sit back in your seat and fold your arms at the end and go, yeah, that was pretty good. You wouldn't, would you? You'd stand up and you would applaud. You might say, bravo! Why? Why give honour like that? Well, because it's deserved. And so in a far, far greater way, God is worthy of all praise. When the 24 elders look at the person of God, they fall on their faces and they give him all glory because he absolutely deserves it. So at the heart of this vision uh, in Revelation 4 is God in all his glory. What do we need in anxious times? We need a clear understanding of God in all of his majesty and all of his power extending gloriously across all of creation. When the church is under pressure, she doesn't need a vacation, you know, a bit of time off, a bit of pampering. She needs to know her God. And so in the midst of our stresses and our challenges, our trials and the things that are so hard for us, we need to grasp the greatness of God. Remember the throne room. One of the cultural challenges we're facing at this point as we reflect on Revelation 4 is this overwhelming depiction of power. God on a throne with power and authority in heaven and earth, nothing beyond his control, and yet we're sort of wrestling with that because we don't like it when all power is in one place at one time and in one person. We don't trust dictators. We don't trust politicians with power. We say power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's what we say. But what if the one with all power is incorruptibly good? What if he is holy, holy, holy? And he loves us all the way to the cross and back. God in his perfect knowledge over all creation and his infinite power is working his perfect will and that is good and it is good for us. It is a truly beautiful thing that God is the one who ultimately holds all power and that is the message of Revelation 4. And it might surprise us to recall that God addresses this vision to Christians who are suffering Horrendous persecution. God's goodness and his power is not afraid of the so-called problem of suffering and evil. Revelation is actually the narrative of God's mercy toward those who might yet turn back to him in a world that is bent on evil. This book tells us of God's ultimate destruction of evil all in his timing. It shows God's special compassion 
for people as they suffer. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. And he's with his people in those depths. When we consider our lives, we're not facing the threat to, you know, worship Emperor Domitian or Emperor Trajan or, you know, renounce Jesus and have some ugly death. The same vision, though, that God provided to the first century church is exactly what we need now. Maybe there are times for you, for us, when we wonder, am I even going to make it through the week? How's that going to happen? They are the times that we need to have our perspective changed by God. Whatever your challenge is, I don't know what it is and I don't pretend to know them all. God is glorious over all creation. And he is in control. And he is worthy of all praise. And what Revelation 4 does is ask us to remember that as we address whatever's in front of us. Will you pray with me? Our great God and Father, you are majestic beyond our words and our ability to tell. We praise you. We thank you that you are reigning and ruling the Son, the Spirit, and that you are good. In the midst of the challenges that we face, whatever they be, whatever our trial or suffering, we ask that you keep reminding us of your majestic love and compassion and power. Help us as we encounter whatever it is to keep this vision before us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.